0: Welcome everyone to CDO's Magazine series of one-on-one interviews with CEOs, data leaders, and key influencers. I'm your host, Robert Lutton, Vice President, Central Consultants, and I'm coming to you today from Toronto, Canada, working with the CEO Magazine. Today, I've got the pleasure of introducing Brian Evergreen. Brian is a founder and CEO of The Profitable Good Company, and is best known for his work advising Fortune 500 executives on artificial intelligence strategy. Brian is also the author of the upcoming book, Autonomous Transformations, creating a more human future in the era of artificial intelligence. So welcome, Brian.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to be here.
0: You know, how would data leaders strike a balance between leveraging the power of AI technologies while maintaining human-centric values and ethics within their organization? Uh, How would you say they balance that out great
1: question what i would say as as and part of the reason you know back to that first question about the inspiration that led me to write the book um, that i that i've written is that um i so i come from a sort of humanities background of having you know done chess and but then i studied music theory and composition and um and then i got into working in the corporate sphere and strategy and tech and then ai ultimately and so I always thought the two were two distinct things and that hopefully someday I could aim whatever level of you know work that I'm doing in the AI space or in the advanced analytics space initially, right? Um, in the direction of, of doing good. And right. what I've uncovered is that, especially doing the research of where I'd met with over 50 leaders across sectors, mostly C-level, um, is that the two are actually inextricably linked. And so it's not a question of, let's just go get all the value out of ai and then maybe we can try to make our organiz- you know rehumanize work and make our organization a better place to work and try to do good in the world the truth is in today's era and where we're at with in terms of organization what the data shows that the reason only 13% of ai initiatives make it into production is because of this breakdown of these of the human elements it's not because the tech isn't ready Right. Otherwise, seven of the 10 most, you know, um, seven out of the 10 top publicly traded companies in the, you know, in the world would not be technology companies. So the fact that that shows the technology is fine. It's that's not the problem. It's culture. And you can see this with Microsoft's transformation from 2014 to today. From the very beginning, Satya Nadella said, I think we need to have a new technology strategy. We We need an updated business strategy. And we need to have a people a culture strategy. And he designed for culture and took the human element into the very beginning of the design. And that's one reason that Microsoft has had such uh, such a tremendous uh, level of success is that the culture is tuned to such um, that it makes success so much more inevitable than if you just ignore that part. So to your question, I think um, it, I would say instead of thinking about it like, yeah, how do I get the economic harness the economic potential out of AI and then also rehumanize work. I would say that rehumanizing work is a predecessor. And I'll give you one quick example. Sure. Is that we have these three, I I call them factions, for lack of a better word. We have the, the technology faction, we have the business faction and the industry faction within most organizations, right? right? Where a hundred years ago, industry leaders had all the purchasing power and they were were calling all the shots. And then 50 years ago, that with the rise of shareholder primacy, then business leaders start calling many much more, if not all the shots. And then over the last 30 years, technology leaders have gone from the back room to the boardroom. And so now you have these three factions of incredibly intelligent, capable, educated people they believe that they know what needs to happen and so if you're trying to solve for the fact that they're doing lots of infighting and struggling to get yeah. you know even if they get something approved another faction yeah. kills it right we have this issue that's not a technology problem either that's a that's a people problem that's a social system problem so in moving away from managing your organization as a mechanized system where things are predictable and repeatable and you can just tune this part and and set it up to do this re- repetitive thing and it'll just do that Humans don't do that. You can't set up a, a any person in any position to just do a repetitive task and expect that they'll just keep doing it that way forever because they're, they're not yeah. m- mechanistic. Um, so that, that'd be my kind of long-winded answer to your question. Uh,
0: so we add that to the skill sets that, that are critically important is uh, being able to uh, uh, work with our individuals or other humans, the culture side of the organization. Mm-hmm. So I I wanna move into the second main theme of of your upcoming book, which is how the industrial revolution is holding back the AI initiatives. I think you may have just started and sort of tweaked (laughs) upon it. But if I I can ask in your opinion, what do you see as the main obstacles or roadblocks that organizations are going to face or maybe some of them are currently facing and trying to integrate AI initiatives within their existing systems and frameworks?
1: So I did, you're right that I did start to kind of answer that a little bit preemptively. So I'd say that some of those roadblocks are that that we've inherited from the Industrial Revolution. One of them is what I mentioned about being divided by our expertise because coming out of the Industrial Revolution, the, the, if, in 1911, Frederick Taylor wrote a book called Principles of Scientific Management. Right. And in it, he said, um, in the past, the man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. And in his mind at the time that where each individual person on a production line was was had a high variability of process and therefore time and quality of the same product being sold by the same company. And so he basically invented you, I'm sure you already know this, but I'll just share for the broader group. He basically invented process mapping process, um, optimization, um, all these different things that we just are kind of a standard part of our business lexicon today, were invented back then with the the express goal of saying, we need to kind of get the human element kind of smoothed out so that we can have repeatability and we can optimize. And um, and that for that time and in that era was an important step toward laying the foundation for our whole society, right? and so now today we're in a different era there the humans have so much more we have more power in our pocket than right that than it took to get to the moon and 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 we have access to more information and so new people entering the workforce today or just all of us that are already making up the workforce, we know a a, a lot more than people knew in nineteen eleven we've a, sure. we've had access to so much more information and um, and so we're able to think differently. And so a different kind of leadership is required. And so an example to your point about data leadership being held back, um, we sometimes exercise a form of uh, what I've called uh, data science Taylorism. And so where in Taylorism, you stood back and you watched the, what Taylor called uh, the, the man of sluggish mind. And right. you had a stopwatch and you watched what they were doing and how long it took them to do each thing. And then you designed a new process that you felt was, the ultimate process, and then taught them. Fast forward to today, you have data science leaders coming in saying, I don't need to talk to your industry experts. I don't need the domain expertise at all. Just give me the data and we'll redesign the process based off of our expertise, which while I think most often is well-intended, it ends up becoming a form of, and it leads to this breakdown, again, between the people that are in the factory or on the front line or you know, doing whatever the work is day to day and the people that are designing or redesigning the process or the system behind the scenes. And by coming together as people and saying, okay, if I'm gonna be designing a solution for a manufacturing line, I'm gonna get that person that operates that machine or maybe several of them in a room and say, and just walk through it all together and, and work and design collaboratively with them, even if they might not have, you know, the, their credentials is that they're the domain expert of that machine, right? But if you're designing for that machine, that's a very, very important voice to have in the room. And so um, that's one example that I would say um, is, um, you know, holding us back from really the economic potential that these technologies present and I can give more, but I want to give you a chance. Yeah,
0: to. yeah you know, I, as you're discussing it, I think there's there's something that comes up, especially that a a lot of people, a lot of our uh, listeners would be real interested in 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 your perceptions on uh, how organizations can overcome the resistance to change, and also the fear that perhaps their job may get displaced uh, through the accompanying AI implementation. Any, any thoughts on how we can uh, address that or how individuals could overcome that?
1: Absolutely. So we, there's three, I, I, I in the book I talk about three um, out, outlooks on jobs. And one of them I, is called job protectionism, which is right. the current class of jobs as they exist and the tasks that make them up today needs to be protected at all costs. Right. And the real, the real goal of that, I think underneath that is we want to protect the people. We want to continue to uphold and value to those people it's not the jobs that we're caring about there's the people right and then then on the other end of it we have job fatalism which is you know robots are coming all jobs are going to go away you know let's (laughs) let's that's that's a whole nother perspective that i don't think i need to get into why that might not be the advised perspective and then the the middle that i you know uh, propose is job pragmatism where you say okay the technology is going to transform our jobs and it's the job of leaders at the moment that they first conceive of implementing a technology that could be that could ever make any set of tasks or even a full job redundant they have probably 6 months at a minimum most likely a couple of years before the technology is tuned and and ready to go into production right. in their organization that would then make those jobs redundant and that's a that's a time frame that you have where those people could be reskilled upskilled. There might be new product lines that could be designed based. You could plan ahead on the amount of cost reduction and say, we're going to invest in a new product line that starting out will need, you know, more transactional work to be, you know, to execute right. because we can't automate something that hasn't existed before necessarily, or at least not as easily. And so, and so I think that, that those three job outlooks, I think maybe help the conversation a bit. Cause I know personally, from my perspective, as um, you know, a, a former executive working for Microsoft and then with the different research institutions i spoke with such as the advanced robot um, the CEO for advanced robotics manufacturing what he said is he said in every single implementation of robotics that he's seen in the in factories around the world uh, he has yet to see one where jobs were displaced Every single time it's the, 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 you know, the wage and the labor, you know, the, the robotics, uh, balance between automation and labor is, is helping the human experience as right. opposed. To, right. So, so tra-
0: transformation and retraining are critical during that stage of yes. employing new technology, which I think is, is a very sound and plausible, uh, aspect. And, and also when you get into the, the robotics, it does. Uh, tend to uh, lift the salary levels of the people working in that space, which mm-hmm. does help everyone uh, all around. Brian, I'd like to thank you for your time today. I know we didn't get into uh, discussing much of the actual book, but it's uh, it's on the uh, Amazon. You can pre-order it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on behalf of the CDU Magazine, we appreciate you providing your thoughts and, and interpretations of how data leaders could be able to leverage Autonomous Transformations, and we hope that your book is a huge success and that we'll have you coming back and share your knowledge again on how harnessing artificial intelligence with its adjunct technology for the betterment of not only the organization, but also the world.
1: Thank you very much. I I hope so, too. And uh, if if so, I'll look forward to speaking with you again, Robert.
0: Uh, Me too. Uh, It was a wonderful interview. And for our listeners, please visit cdomagazine.tech for additional interviews. Thank you.